1: And welcome to a special holiday edition of What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team.
2: And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the Markets team. And Sarah, it is the day after Thanksgiving this podcast comes out. So we should probably speak quietly. We don't want to wake anyone up from a food coma if if, if they're in.
1: (laughs) If you ate too much turkey Um, I can't say I feel bad for you probably did Thanksgiving right but happy Thanksgiving to everyone (laughs) (laughs)
2: that's right that's right and yeah Thanksgiving is a time to sort of take stock of your life and we're not gonna focus on the week in uh, of markets like we normally do because let's be honest I think most of us were probably more uh, focused on that turkey than we were on the markets
1: 100%
2: instead we're gonna focus on as uh, the name of the show implies what goes up something that unfortunately has been going up uh, in recent years years in, in recent decades is the temperature of the earth. I hate to I hate to be a downer, but we're going to talk about climate change. a Very touchy subject for a lot of people. Um, obviously, uh, the president of the United States is not a big believer in it. Some people are not big believers in it. Others are very enthusiastic uh, believers in it and believe now is the time to act We're going to save that sort of controversy for another podcast because, you know, ideally what this podcast is about is how to invest um, and climate change, like so many other things. In the world is creating opportunities for investment. So uh, don't send us angry emails about it. It's it's our job to talk about.
1: How, no angry emails. No angry tweets. If you have something rough to say, don't even call our podcast hotline. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, maybe i would be curious. About maybe yeah, yeah, you yeah. can
1: you can leave us a message. Yeah, and, yeah. and as a reminder, that number is six four six three two four three four nine zero.
2: All right. So let me read something uh, for you here. A, a bit of a, a again, a downer. But here's the take on climate change uh, from a recent white paper uh, by our guest, who I'll introduce after this. Hurricanes, typhoons, droughts, wildfires and other extreme weather events are causing record damage. Increasingly, climate change is impacting the economy and our daily lives and has come into focus as an existential threat to the world as we know it. The author of that uh, very looking on the bright side report is with us here, <laughs> Lucas White. He's a portfolio manager with GMO. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you're basically you manage a strategy at GMO that is investing in climate change uh, and sort of the the potential winners of climate change. Could you just walk us through? Um, when did the strategy start kind of uh, obviously at Gmo uh, everything has to go through Jeremy Grantham I assume so was this uh, something he championed um, and you know, just just tell us how it all came about
3: Uh, Yeah, so actually, uh, maybe ironically, it evolved out of our natural resources strategy that we launched uh, back in 2011. Uh, Jeremy Grantham's been focused on resource scarcity for a number of years and the dynamics that that poses uh, for the commodity markets. Uh, In other words, there's growing demand for natural resources, and yet there's a finite supply, uh, in particular, a finite supply of cheap, easy-to-access natural resources uh, that that is low-cost and affordable. Uh, When we went to launch that strategy, I was involved in thinking about and researching the risks. Uh, for investing in the resources sector over a long period of time. And I could find a lot of risks that you could diversify away. I could find a lot of risks that were short to medium-term in nature. And as a long-term investor, you could wait out. Uh, But there was one big risk that that kind of stood out, and that was stranded asset risk uh, for the fossil fuel companies. Uh, And those assets could be stranded in a number of ways. We don't know exactly how it might happen, but it could be through carbon regulation. It could be carbon pricing, or it could just be pure technological disruption, wind and solar. Becomes so much cheaper than coal and natural gas that you just don't need all the coal and natural gas assets on your books. Um, so, when I was thinking about how, now, I'm going to launch a strategy, and I'm, I'm kind of the portfolio manager for that strategy. Uh, how do I manage that risk when the sector is 70% fossil fuels? Uh, our competitors are 80 to 90% fossil fuels running global natural resource uh, strategies. Um, What do you do? And we did a few things to manage that risk. One is we have a dramatically lower exposure to energy uh, than than our competitors or the cap-weighted sector. We're at about 35% energy. Uh, So half that of of the broad market. Uh, Within energy, we've always excluded the coal companies, the tar sand companies, the heavy oil companies. So the companies producing resources that have the highest uh, uh, risk of having stranded assets because they have the worst emissions profiles. Uh, And the third thing we did, which is most relevant for climate change investing. Uh, frankly, is we've always targeted some of that energy exposure to be to clean energy. So of that 35% energy exposure we have, 10% of it is clean energy. And so we've been investing in wind, solar, clean power generation and the like uh, since 2011. What happened is the costs for all of these clean energy technologies dropped in a way that really nobody could have foreseen in a very short period of time. So that around 2015, I started to make the case that the opportunity set is mature enough. There are enough companies that are making money, uh, have been cash flow positive and and, uh, generating strong earnings and have strong balance sheets uh, and aren't totally reliant on public policy support that we should launch a strategy that's less focused on kind of traditional natural resources and more focused on the clean energy transition and where we need to go uh, with the world. So it was really about approaching these inflection points where at some point in the not too distant future wind, solar, electric vehicles, other clean energy solutions are going to be cheaper uh, than their fossil fuel-based kind of more traditional uh, forms.
1: So that was something that jumped out to me in one of the white papers that you did co-author with Jeremy Grantham. There was a chart that you guys included showing the price structure of many of these types of energies and these companies, and you see the price coming down. However, there are many people out there who will still pushback and a common rebuke or refrain is that it's still pretty expensive. What is a time frame on something like this? If you really wanted to take advantage of this change going forwards and the companies that are driving the change against climate change, how long is the time frame actually in a realistic sense?
3: Uh, Well, in some ways, wind and solar are already the cheapest forms of electricity generation. Um, The problem is the intermittency. So our grids weren't designed to handle intermittent generation. They were designed around the idea that we would have centralized persistent generation, whether that be nuclear, coal, natural gas, doesn't really matter, uh, then long-distance transmission to a distribution, uh, local distribution network. Well, now we have wind turbines all over the place. We have solar panels on our rooftop. Sometimes they generate, sometimes they don't. And the grid wasn't really designed to handle that. So wind and solar, the generation side of things, is already in many ways and in many areas significantly cheaper than coal or natural gas. The problem is you either have to store that energy uh, or you have to enhance your grid and Mm -hmm. modernize your grid and make it more sophisticated and interconnected. Our belief is that there will be secular growth for decades in both of those areas uh, as trillions of dollars need to flow into energy storage and and, and into uh, modernizing our grids. Um, Just to give you a sense, energy storage sounds good, uh, but it effectively doesn't really exist uh, in in today's world, at least at a utility scale. Uh, About one or two percent of energy is stored globally uh, today, and 95 to to, uh, 98 percent of it is pumped hydro, where you pump water up a mountain into a reservoir and then let it flow back down and generate hydropower, which is brilliant if you're next to a mountain with a reservoir. But for for most people, uh, that isn't a great solution and it's not scalable uh, for many locations. Being so, someone
1: from Florida, I can say that there are no mountains around, clearly. So it'd be difficult. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Lucas, how much of a headwind or a tailwind is the government when it comes to this strategy? I mean, obviously, President Obama was a, a big advocate of solar energy President Trump, on the other hand, is I think safe to say basically a, a climate change denier. Does that cause you know a, a headwind to this strategy, or is it the economics, as you say, are getting so clear on the side of Clear Energy that it it, it doesn't really matter who is controlling Congress or who's in the White House?
3: I think with every passing year, it matters less and less uh, because the economics are just becoming more and more compelling. Uh, That said, there's no doubt about it. You want public policy support behind you. Uh, There's nothing but upside uh, from having that. The federal government of the United States is is one government entity, though, and, and people make too much of an issue of it, in my opinion. Uh, with, with Donald Trump uh, announcing that we're going to pull out of the Paris Agreement, uh, there's been some wavering and it's not entirely clear where that's going to go. But uh, even if the U.S. government does, cities, states, businesses, universities around the country banded together and said that they're going to abide by the terms of the Paris Agreement and make sure that the United States does, regardless of what the federal government does uh, in California is you know the, the world leader, in my opinion, uh, when it comes to clean energy. If California were its own country, it would be something like the, the sixth uh, or seventh biggest economy in the world. Uh, so it's not kind of small potatoes. Uh, so I, I think it's great to have U.S. federal government uh, support. But every other government on Earth, for the most part, has signed on to the Paris Agreement and is committed to it and has uh, recommitted uh, in the wake of the United States announcing that we may pull out. Uh, So in the long term, I really think Uh, It's it's not going to be a moving factor.
1: Over the last few weeks, the U.S. has formally begun to withdraw itself out of the Paris Climate Agreement. I'm looking at the top holdings in your strategy, though, and the top four I see right here are still U.S. companies. So maybe it matters more what corporations themselves are doing. From your perspective, though, when you guys are looking at companies across the globe, doing your research, where do you really find companies at the forefront of this change? Where does it look like there is the most opportunity?
3: Uh, well, most of the companies that we have in our universe uh, are global companies, and they're serving a global marketplace. Uh, the only times you really see regional things, uh, for the most part, is is China does have kind of its own wind market. There's the Chinese wind market and then the global wind market, uh, excluding China. Uh, so you do see a few um, kind of domestically oriented uh, opportunities here and there, but 99% of the companies that we look at are really in in the global marketplace. So whether they're domiciled in the US or in Europe uh, or Asia or or South America doesn't matter uh, all that much. most of the opportunities that we see are outside the U.S. Uh, so our strategy since inception uh, has been about a quarter to a third in the United States uh, and, and the rest outside the United States, including uh, typically about 20 percent in emerging markets. So we're seeing opportunities all around the world, both in terms of where the companies are domiciled, but also in terms of the markets that you're selling into.
2: So Sarah beat me to that uh, list of the top holdings. Always one of the my favorite things to look at uh, when looking at a, a funder strategy like this, and a, 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 several of them um, are pretty obvious. Solar Edge uh, was a top holding as of the end of September, I believe. Obviously makes equipment for the solar industry. Vestas, the uh, Danish wind energy company. Renewable Energy Group, uh, another clean energy group in the U.S. Couple surprises to me, at least, though. So I'm, I'm curious if you could help us explain how these are climate change plays. Freeport-McMoran, the the miner. I'm assuming it's the metals used in solar equipment. Is that is that the main uh, reason that's there?
3: Yes. Yeah, so copper is at the heart of clean energy. Uh, when you look at wind and solar, uh, because of the distributed nature, you now have wind tur- uh, a series of wind turbines. You have uh, hundreds of or thousands of solar panels, that's a lot of wiring and a lot of connectivity uh, that you need to operate. So wind and solar projects, uh, we use about four to 12 times as much copper, depending on the specifics of the project relative to a coal or natural gas power plant. Electric vehicles use three to four times as much copper uh, as an internal combustion engine vehicle. Electric buses, for example, uh, use something like 800 pounds of copper, Uh, We also need to overhaul our electric grids, as we've been talking about. That's incredibly copper-intensive, energy-efficient electrical components, appliances, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We needed an an electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Just copper is at the heart of clean energy. It's brilliant to want to get off of fossil fuels. I'm on board, uh, even though I run a natural resources strategy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. You know, I'm with the program. Yeah. We need to get rid of fossil fuels uh, over some period of time. Uh, but you're just moving the burden from one set of materials to another set of materials. There is no magical kind of clean, free energy out there that doesn't rely on materials. You're just moving the burden to copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, vanadium, uh, and other clean energy materials.
2: So for listeners out there that are sort of environmentally minded, uh, you look at a company like a, a heavy mining company like that, and you don't really think of a, a great environmentally friendly uh, company, but it's so crucial in the future of of solar and wind and climate change that uh, I guess the the pros of it outweigh the the negatives.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean Jeremy always says that if you get climate wrong, uh, nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the local environmental impact of mining operations isn't ideal. Uh, the labor issues aren't ideal. Uh, these aren't things that you love as an investor or a human being. Uh, but the reality is, we need these materials. Mining is a dirty game. Uh, we we obviously evaluate the environmental impact and the ESG profiles of the companies that we invest in and make sure that we're comfortable. And if we're not comfortable, we won't. Invest Invest in, in those mining companies, uh, but generally speaking, you're, in my opinion, putting your head in the sand. If you say, "Oh, I want clean energy, but I, I don't want to be involved in the mining industry," well, y- if you don't believe in copper mining or you think it's bad, uh, first of all, you're condemning 1.2 billion people or so who don't have access to electricity to very low. Uh, standard of living, very low quality of life, uh, because you uh, don't think that copper miners should be out there. And I don't see anybody going and ripping the copper out of their walls in their house (laughs) and and throwing it back into uh, the the global market because they don't believe in
2: it. The other, uh, I think it's the fourth top holding, uh, a little less than 4%, uh, Mosaic, basically a a fertilizer company, right? Uh, Walk us through how that fits into the strategy.
3: Uh, Yeah, so... In terms of our strategy, we look at companies that are helping to mitigate climate change, but we also look at companies that are going to help the world adapt to climate change. Uh, the two big things on the adaptation side of things are, are food and water. Uh, agricultural productivity is incredibly impacted by a world uh, or in a world of climate change. You have droughts, floods, uh, extreme temperature events, which are death for crops, because it's not just that the average global temperature has risen, it's that there used to be a normal distribution around a lower average temperature, and now there's a skewed distribution around a higher average temperature, and that skew is towards the extremely hot days. Uh, You have extreme downpours, which wash away your soil nutrients. You're basically taking... Farming, which go talk to farmers, you're not going to find a farmer who says, oh, it used to be so easy to farm, but now it's starting to get difficult. It's always been a difficult game. Now you're making it much, much more difficult. So companies focused on keeping agricultural productivity as high as possible, whether that be irrigation, drought-resistant seeds, precision agriculture machinery and equipment, or fertilizers, which is where Mosaic comes into play, uh, are all within scope uh, for our strategy.
1: So you mentioned an acronym earlier, ESG, and essentially what you're talking about is people who are investing in environmental, social and governance issues. Well, against ones that would be a problem. And lately, the exchange-traded fund uh, environment, that industry has really latched onto it. We're on pace for a record year of inflows into so-called ESG funds. Um But I think you've made it very clear in the past, and you also alluded to it in your answer, that what you guys are doing is different than ESG. So can you explain to us the difference in what ESG investors do versus what you guys do in investing for climate change?
3: Uh, Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. I would argue that our strategy is an ESG strategy, but not because of its focus on climate change as, as kind of the area that we're investing in, but because we are considering ESG issues, ESG risks, uh, in, and we're integrating those issues and those risks holistically in our investment process. And to me, that's the spirit of ESG in our industry. I think ESG has gotten uh, mistaken for sounding good. Uh, moral and ethical investing, uh, avoiding controversy. But to me, that's not the spirit of ESG, or at least it shouldn't be. Uh, And so I think we are uh, running an ESG strategy from the perspective of we are incorporating ESG uh, risks and concerns in positioning the strategy. Uh, It's not ESG if your definition of ESG is sounding good to everybody and avoiding controversy at all costs.
2: So I noticed the the benchmark for the strategy is actually the MSCI, All Country World Index, um, that's a pretty broad group. I assume there was no sort of benchmark uh, that just dedicated to climate change to, to benchmark the fund, to. Yeah,
3: HSBC did have a climate change index. They discontinued it in 2016 as part of a broader dismantling of their index line. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't specific to their climate change strategy. Uh, but other than that, there are a few other environmental type indexes out there, but there's so much... Um, there's so much of a gap between what they're representing and what we're doing that they wouldn't be uh, a good benchmark for what we're doing. Uh, benchmarking to the All-Country World Index is kind of throwing our hands in the air a little bit and saying, this isn't a good benchmark for what we're doing in the short to medium term, but our goal is to perform better than, than the broad equity market over a long period of time, uh, and, and ACWI, uh the All-Country World Index, is the most commonly accepted global equity benchmark.
1: When it comes to climate change, I also found interesting in your primer, when you think about other reasons to think about climate change as a way to find opportunity to invest. One was actually inflation protection. And yes, now many people, when you think about the economy and you think about what we're going through, people talk about the lack of inflation. Um, so can you break down how actually a strategy like this can provide protection against inflation, even if we are in a low inflation environment?
3: Yeah. So one thing I'll say is that energy historically has has been a very difficult thing to give up. Divestment gets talked a lot uh, about in our industry these days, divesting from oil and gas and coal and fossil fuels and whatnot. Uh, the problem with divesting for many investors is that historically energy companies have outperformed the broad equity market. They've given you diversification. Uh, there have been whole decades, uh, in the 1970s and then 2000 to 2010, where the broad equity market was down in real terms, and yet energy companies were up over 100% in real terms. That's the kind of diversification that you want in your portfolio. Uh, and, and certainly in the 70s, that's a huge inflationary period, uh, and energy companies didn't just protect you. Uh, in that period, but you actually grew your purchasing power uh, investing in those energy companies, because once again they were up well over one hundred percent real so it's a tough thing to give up. But when you invest in clean energy solutions that compete with fossil fuel solutions, you get indirect exposure to fossil fuel prices. So if coal and natural gas go through the roof, wind and solar become much more competitive, much more economic in the world mobilizes much more quickly to to uh, rotate to them. Uh, similarly with electric vehicles, there's a connection between oil prices and electric vehicle sales that we've seen uh, in the U.S. over the last few years. So because of that indirect exposure that you get to fossil fuel prices investing uh, in, in clean energy solutions, then more direct investments that we're making into clean energy materials, agriculture, water, infrastructure, other real asset type uh, businesses, we think our strategy would do well in a world where inflation was driven uh, by commodity price rise now if, if inflation is driven by uh, global trade wars or something like that or, or massive money printing, uh, you know it 's not as clear that our strategy would would give you a lot of inflation protection, but in the developed markets, at least historically, most inflationary periods have been driven uh, by commodity prices rising.
2: Just to get back to those top holdings for a little bit, uh, and I'm fascinated by this because one thing you cannot accuse the strategy of being is a, a closet indexer. You know, it's <laughs> it's definitely, t- you know, taking a, a stance on, on the stocks it picks, Um though, if you were to sort of blindfold me and say, what would you think would be one of the top weights in a, a climate change strategy? I would say, well, maybe Tesla would be there. I'm, I'm just curious. I don't see Tesla in the top holdings. Is it anywhere in the fund? Um, and if not, kind of what is, what do you see as far as the transportation space? Um, uh, you know, a lot of the holdings seem to be very much energy infrastructure rather than uh, transportation. Um, is there, is there, Something in the fund to reflect sort of uh, the future of automobiles?
3: Uh, yes, yeah, so there's a lot there. Uh, let's see. Let's start, <laughs> with, uh, let's start with Tesla. So Tesla, uh, if you invest in Tesla, you're paying outrageous valuations uh, for the automobile manufacturing industry. Uh, and, and increasingly, a play on Tesla won't be a play on electric vehicles. It will be a play on uh, vehicle manufacturing because over the next five years, Mercedes, BMW, even Ford and GM, which are pretty dopey auto manufacturers, are going to be coming out with their electric vehicle lines. Every single auto manufacturer on Earth is going to be rolling out uh, electric vehicle lines. So Tesla's not going to be the only game in town. So you're paying a huge multiple, in an industry that's an extremely low multiple industry, the big auto manufacturers are five, six, seven times earnings, uh, generally speaking. Then you have Tesla, which if they made money for long enough to measure their PE would be, you know, extremely expensive, <laughs> like 100 or, or right, 200 right. Or,
2: or whatever it would be. Um, this is kind so, of what I suspected the answer would be. So Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. So it's very expensive and you're playing a very uncertain market share game.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, you have... Uh, all these other manufacturers coming along, and Tesla, in the grand scheme of the, the global automobile market, barely sells any vehicles. Well, how many are they going to sell when they have a lot of competition? Right. Uh, it's a it's a huge question mark. So it's highly speculative. I wouldn't even consider investing in Tesla an investment. It's really speculation uh, at this point in, in the maturity of their business and, and the market. Uh, and the third thing I'll say is that you guys haven't given me any pot, uh, which is unfortunate. But Elon Musk is like smoking pot on podcasts <laughs> and talk about ESG <laughs> risks and concerns. There's a huge governance risk uh, there. Sure. He's not right. the most stable a uh, uh, figure to have running your company and being the leader. Uh, for your company, right. uh, so we- Should uh, we have
2: pot available for the guests,
1: sir? I, don't, well, I think we'll have to, we'll have to, we'll to check ask, with ask the our producer, on yeah. yeah, I don't think we can give an answer <laughs> on that, unfortunately. Um, this would also probably be a stretch and a bit speculative, but lately when people think about the alternative meat space, somehow people bring that back into the climate conversation and sustainability. Does that ever come up in conversations when you are thinking about uh, investing um, in- Changes going forward, as it relates to climate change, or trying to combat that.
3: Uh, yes, certainly, we we consider the the alternative protein sources, so impossible uh, foods, and and um, uh, there are a couple others. Uh, they're so expensive right now. They trade at 50 times sales, not 50 times earnings, 50 mm-hmm. times sales. It's very difficult for a value investor. And, and at my company and in my group, uh, we're, we're pretty focused on value and valuation. Uh, it's very difficult to get comfortable uh, with those kinds of, of lofty valuation levels.
2: Well, it's an interesting point you bring up, though, that these sort of uh, combating climate change plays, the real obvious ones, tend, tend to really do draw in. Uh, A lot of investor interest to the point where, uh, you know, you're not interested in fighting climate change at any price. It sounds like reasonable, reasonably valued equities. (laughs) Um, uh, Is that is that's a fair summary of uh, your strategy? Uh, Yeah, we're looking for companies
3: that are trading at a discount to the market that look cheaper than the average company out there, but are still exposed to decades of secular growth. Uh, It may sound counterintuitive, but you can find companies, wind companies, solar companies, companies in the automobile manufacturing industry who may not be the manufacturers, but they're producing the lithium-ion batteries that go into the electric vehicles, or they're uh, working on energy-efficient or gas-efficient internal combustion engines and rotating their business towards the electric vehicle market and electric vehicle powertrains.
2: Could you give us a few names in that space?
3: Uh, So companies like Borg, Warner, Delphi, uh, et cetera, there are one or two others that we look at. Uh, These are companies that we think are are kind of exposed to electric vehicle growth, but you're not playing the same market share game that you are when you invest in a Tesla or a BYD. Uh, going back to your question earlier uh, about the uh, transportation market, how else we invest in it, you can also invest in, in kind of railroads uh, and, and railroad companies. Uh, and there are other ways of investing in transportation beyond just the the obviously uh, obvious Teslas and BYDs of the world, BYD being the Chinese electric vehicle manufacturer. Uh, to be honest, though, we don't see much hype and hysteria beyond the areas that you guys are, are mentioning. Uh,
2: so in the news, that's what we tend to latch on to. Is exactly. The hype
3: so and the, the kind of plant-based meat uh, replacements uh, are, are kind of uh, really, really, you see a lot of hype and hysteria there. You certainly see it in the electric vehicle manufacturers themselves. But you move beyond that uh, and you can find companies, uh, let's put it this way, investors are not very comfortable and optimistic about solar and wind. A lot of early investors in the solar and wind markets have been burned. There was a real bubble there about a decade ago, right? Exactly, and investors have a long memory for losses, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, for getting burned. Uh, So you find companies, in the last year, we were able to buy Vestas Wind Systems, in our opinion, the biggest, best wind turbine manufacturer in the world, uh, for 13 times earnings, trailing or forward, whichever way you looked at it. At 13 times earnings, you don't have to bake in growth expectations at all. Vestas could never grow uh, for the rest of, of its life, and you're going to er- generate a strong earnings or cash flow yield from owning that company. Uh, if it grows and we know that it's exposed to decades of secular growth. So it's hard for me to imagine, not impossible, but very hard for me to imagine a world where 10 years from now Vestas isn't making more money than it is today. Uh, so if you believe there's going to be growth, uh, then at 13 times earnings, it's a no-brainer.
2: Well, Sarah, you're uh, mentioning Beyond Meat has gotten me hungry. I think it's time for a leftover turkey sandwich. Uh, And that's about all the time we have for for this week. Lucas White, great to have you. Really fascinating stuff. Thanks for coming on the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. What Goes Out will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek and Mike is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.